You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to uh, Thrive. Welcome to this Easter Sunday where we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, who is now present here. It's not just that when um, a preacher gets up, he's preaching, um, and you're listening. It is that Jesus is present in our midst the resurrected one, and he is the one who is presenting himself to you to give you new life, purpose, meaning, hope, everything. We've been in a series called Simply Jesus, the Gospel According to Mark, where for quite a while now we've been going through different sections of that gospel. Why? Because Mark is probably, you could say, the simplest of the four gospels. It's the probably earliest account, the first one written of the four gospels. And he is often very simple and straightforward, and we'll see that today in the Easter proclamation as well, and yet profound. It's hard to do that. I mean, I'm not simple, and I'm not profound. <laughs> I'm wordy, you know, and, <laughs> and I can babble. And many of you know that, right? Um, Mark is just amazingly uh, concise in his wording. And so we're going to be looking. It's only six, eight verses of the Gospel of Mark in Mark 16 today. And... What you need more than anything, I believe, what I need more than anything is not, you know, great theological expositions and another, you know. I need Jesus simply. Simply Jesus. And right now this world needs Jesus. Simply Jesus. And um, our nation needs Jesus. Our culture needs Jesus. So many people just need Jesus. Jesus, simply him, and with him then everything else comes that is needed. So let's read um, the Gospel of Mark today, the end of this Gospel, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And you might be going like, well, wait a minute, Um, but my Bible, if you're a King James Version type person, goes on from verse 8 and keeps going, yes, but the, um, the earliest manuscripts that we have of this Gospel stop at verse 8, we're not sure what the end of the gospel is or if Mark deliberately, and I would dare say he deliberately ends the gospel with verse 8. But a lot of people were uncomfortable with it because it just seems to be hanging there. And I'll show you why in just a minute, okay? But let's read it. Mark uh, 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. What? Yeah. Um, Now, I'm pretty old. 
part of the old school, I'd say. And uh, when I was in grade school, we learned to diagram sentences. Any, anyone else diagram sentences ever? They don't do that anymore. No, they don't. No, my, I think my kids did because they went to a, a Christian school. But a lot of the public, they don't, spelling, you know, handwriting, gone, you know. But um, I learned to diagram sentences. One thing I was also taught in all of that is don't ever end a sentence with a preposition. Mark does. Yeah, in the original Greek. So if you go, uh, like the English translations you have kind of make it nice. But if you go with just the way Mark actually wrote it, like literally, this is what it says. The women went out from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. They said nothing to anyone they were afraid for. The last word in Greek is gar, which is the word for. It's a preposition. He ends with a preposition. And that is why a lot of people, oh, how can this be the end? This makes no sense. Well, you're stuck in the middle of the story. You're right there at that graveside with them. You are right by that tomb. You get that message. And now the response is exactly what Mark is trying to elicit from you. What are you going to do with it? He challenges us. Even religious people, he challenges today with this gospel. And it's very simple. He doesn't go into all elaborate detail. And yet he challenges us. I think we're going to find at the end of this gospel, which is not much of an end, it's actually the end that becomes another beginning. He challenges us. He encourages us. He frames for us. And we're going to learn today that he challenges your mind, he encourages the heart, and he frames the future. Now, we're going to spend quite a bit of time. Yeah, I know. I know. We're going to spend quite uh, Realize, my first point is going to be the longest of the three, OK? So when I get through the first point, finally, don't feel like, oh my gosh, the sermon is going to go forever. I know, okay? But it's partly because I think we do need to challenge your mind today and the mind of our culture. A lot of people have written Christianity off, not because they've actually studied it and found its tenets to be false or misleading or lacking. It's because often they haven't studied it at all and they just kind of write it off. But Mark challenges your mind with this story. I don't know if you know this, there were dozens of messianic movements at the time before Jesus came, a couple of decades, and for 100 years or so after Jesus. And these messianic movements were people that seemed to have charisma and got a following for a while. And then all of a sudden, the authorities, religious leaders, or the Romans snuffed them out. And guess what happened when the leader's gone? The whole thing just fell apart time and again. In fact, there was the most famous one is Simon ben 
Kosiba, also known as Bar Kokhba, because a, a rabbi at the time of Simon Bar Kokhba, or Kosiba, called him Bar Kokhba, son of the star, for numbers, uh, for the um, book of numbers in it, a prophecy that Moses spoke about the coming one who would shine like a star and reign on earth, a prophecy of the Messiah. And in 132 AD, he led a rebellion against Rome for three years. And people were flocking to him, and then the Romans killed him. He got executed. Guess what happened? It all fell apart. When the Messiah dies, the Messianic movement dies too. So the question is, why did this one take off? Of all the other ones that could have taken off, why this one? That's part of the challenge, Mark. Challenges your mind. You have to come up with a reasonable explanation from the first century history to go like, why is the Christianity thing, why did it grow? Why over the next 200 years it exploded on the scene and basically dominated the religious scene and the culture itself and transformed the Roman Empire through this simple message? Now the Gospel of Mark will tell you it's because the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. What Mark records compelled that message forward. You'll not find, actually, any trace of Christianity in its most primitive, basic form, in its simplest form, without this central teaching that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and rose again, that he is Lord period. You can't find a type of Christianity in the early church that first started where a lot of um, historians had wanted to kind of say, well, you know, the stories about Jesus and his love and how compassionate he was, and then they killed him, and then his disciples were thinking about these things, and then after a while they realized, you know, his love needs to go on, so let's invent these stories. You won't find that that was the message. The message wasn't about his teaching or his love or his service or his humility. It was about his death and resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the center of it all. And so Mark says you're going to have to deal with this. You're going to have to be challenged by this. You're going to have to say, how in the world is this going to make any sense? Um, if the Messiah stays dead, the Messianic movement's dead. So what is this with Christianity? Is this true? Um, I don't know if you know this. In our American culture um, recently, we've had a huge kind of movement away from organized religion. First of all, I don't think religion's that organized. We aren't. <laughs> I think most religion is disorganized. But um, from organized religion, from any label or anything, and right now, already, 23% of our population in the United States are in a category they call none of the above. Basically, if they're asked what religion they are, they say, I'm not going to be labeled with anyone. Um, now, don't confuse that for people saying I'm agnostic or atheist. That's actually still a small percentage. Most of the 23% believe in God. Most of them may even like Jesus, but they don't like these exclusive claims of one way. Um, 
about two months ago in um, our clubhouse gym, I was talking with someone raised in a Roman Catholic tradition, and he was getting into it with another, um, <clears throat> another person in the gym at the time about religion, and he goes like, yeah, you know, I just don't like this, you know, how can you just, I, I mean, geez, he's fine, but I just don't see this exclusivity thing, it just bothers me, I don't want, he seemed to not want any conflicts, he didn't want anything controversial, he didn't want anything that would kind of like challenge him or anyone else, I want to keep everything simple, so it's easier to just kind of go none of the above, nothing in particular. Now I get that, I get that, it's tough. I mean, there has been a lot of conflict within Christianity in the United States, it, it, everything's gotten politicized, including religion, and it's a lot easier to just kind of stay out of the arguments than to get into them and deal with it, and it's easier to just kind of try to let everybody get along, believe whatever you want, don't worry about it, I get it. But Mark would say you still have to deal with this. He would still challenge that. You see, one of the reasons why I believe Mark ended this gospel with a preposition, and he ended it with the women fleeing in fear from the tomb, is because the Christians he was writing to at the time, just about 30 years after Jesus, were facing extreme persecution and extreme fear and even the threat to their own lives. And he's saying, I get it. I understand your fears. I understand your anxiety. I understand, yeah, this is tough stuff, but it is so worth it. Yeah, it conflicts with what you would like, an easy, nice life, but you're not looking for comfort here. You're looking for the right purpose, the right direction, and the truth. He doesn't give an easy out in this gospel saying, it's okay, just, just say you're spiritual, not religious. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay, just... Check none of the above. If Jesus rose from the dead, Mark is saying, yes, it changes everything. And yes, that is a frightening, fear-inducing, scary thing because you're not in control anymore of your story. You're not the one setting the agenda. You're not the one in charge. It is Jesus who has now conquered death and the grave and everything, and he is Lord. Now, to say all that does not excuse the Christian church when we've been hypocritical or judgmental, when we have dismissed or treated people poorly, it doesn't excuse that by any means. And I understand a lot of people have been burned by the church this last week. I just talked to somebody else at FGCU who's just like, I just don't want to, I, I just can't, it was just too toxic of a situation. I get that. But it doesn't change the fact that no one still has challenged the tenets of Christianity, looked at the evidence for the resurrection and found it wanting. No one. And so Mark challenges us all to say, look, check it out. Do your research. Don't just take my word from it. Ask around. Do the research. Look into the history of it. Did this really happen? Now, there are probably some people who are skeptical, both not just in a university setting, but in our general population now, that more or less buy into um, an idea of, 
of what you would say is kind of relativism, if you want to call it that. They've heard too many stories of people asserting truth claims this way and that way to just bolster their power trips, their ego, their agenda. And so, you know, I'd rather just, I, I just don't believe anything anymore. And Mark would even challenge that. They would say, oh, look at these. These people, you know, the, the, these stories are kind of legends. They're nice if you want to believe them, but don't, don't put them off as history. What's fascinating is how historical Mark is trying to be. How he actually names names, specifics, and does it once, twice, three times about these women in our text. So he writes, when on the Sabbath was, uh, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him three times. Um, pr prior to that, in Matthew or Mark 15, verse 40, and Mark 15, verse 47, he mentions these three women. They saw him crucified, they saw him and helped with the burial, and they see the tomb empty. And as I mentioned at our uh, Good Friday service here, uh, Richard Baucom, a, a scholar, <clears throat> a British scholar, and a, an ancient historian and a theologian says, this is how ancient people did history. They used eyewitness accounts who were right there, who were still alive at the time that they were writing, to basically say, if you want to know, if you think you want to question, you know, just check my sources. They're still alive. Talk to him. Joseph of Arimathea. Talk to him. Nicodemus. Talk to him. Pontius Pilate. Talk to him. Mary. Mary Magdalene. Salome. You check it out. That's history being written. This is not the way legends are written. There is no once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago, but specifics of individuals still alive who could either verify or clarify or truly contradict what Mark wrote when he wrote it. You want a slam dunk proof, though? Well, the best I can give you is that about 80 years after Jesus, there was a man named Celsus, or Celsus, it's spelled C-E-L-S-U-S. He was a pagan philosopher and the, one of the biggest critics to Christianity around. He looked at the texts, he read the Gospels, and he criticized it thoroughly and completely and said this is all, and he tried to come up with every reasonable explanation or every reason to, to tear down Christianity even as it was growing. And his main point, one of his main points, one of the best, most compelling arguments he had was, well, did you just read this text in Mark and all the other Gospels? Who, were at the t who, who went to the tomb first? Women. You know women. Seriously. He basically said they're histronic, they're unreliable. How could Christianity be true because it relied on women? You think that's so far-fetched? Hey, a lot of people believed him in that day. And sadly, like I said on Friday night, 
It hasn't been until recently, and even in our culture today, women are often written off. Sadly, right? So can you imagine in that ancient culture? Well, now, so if you are Mark, and you're going to try to write a story that you want to show and prove as much as you can and convince people it's true, who would you have at the tomb? Not women. They wouldn't be in the picture at all. You'd have men there. You'd try to convince them in one form or another. Now, why in the world would women ever be in these stories at all? Because maybe that's exactly how it happened, huh? It would have been an embarrassment in those days to try to convince people, and yet what we find is that the stories ring true. And still, maybe some people would say, okay, yeah, first century people, you know, they were so primitive in their thinking. They're superstitious. It was a pre-scientific age. Of course, they believe in things like the resurrection, but we, we modern people, come on, we've written all that stuff off. Well, here's the reality. If you read the stories, if you read all the accounts, no one in that first century, no one among his disciples believed. No one was looking for a resurrection. No one would have come up with this. No one would have, no one was there. Uh, there's no story that says, um, and the disciples on, on the Sabbath itself sat around and talked with each other about how, how terrible it happened, what happened to Jesus. And then Matthew chimes in and says, hey, guys, when Jesus was alive, didn't he say a couple of times that on the third day he would rise again? Now, I know it's crazy, but hey, what harm is it? Let's just go and check it out. Nobody did. Nobody thought it. Nobody would have. Because in that first century among Jewish people who believed in all sorts of things, the one thing they would never have ever thought would happen is a resurrection of a person in the middle of history. They looked for a resurrection maybe at the end of history. When the world would end, things would change, but not in the middle of history. So we may have our reasons to doubt the resurrection. They did too. They did too. It was just as inconceivable for them as for us. So you fit right in with those disciples. And even more to the point, first century Jewish people were the last people on earth to ever, ever, ever give any honor or glory or praise or worship to any human being ever. They had gone into exile over idolatry. They understood the first commandment, have no other gods before me. They would not even in that first century speak, and this is true today, even speak or write the name of God out because for fear that they would mispronounce it or miss somehow spell it in some way to defile his name and profane it so they would just use a substitute. And to find out immediately upon the, this message of the resurrection that first century Jewish disciples honored, praised, gave glory to, and celebrated that Jesus is Lord and Jesus was raised from the dead makes no sense. 
unless they believed he actually was resurrected from the dead, unless it was true. So Mark challenges your mind as it was a challenge to the first disciples. But he also now, see, that was the long point, encouraged the heart. You know, honestly, the first reaction of these women was not, oh, how wonderful, oh, glory be, hallelujah. It was downright gut-wrenching fear. And understandably so, because this was a resurrection, not a resuscitation. This wasn't a continuation of what was. This was a whole new beginning. This was something that was unheard of before. When Jesus rises from the dead to die never again and to conquer death, no one. Everybody was used to death as a part of life, and now life comes to overcome death. It made no sense. This was maybe the same Jesus with his body, but it was so glorified. It was something totally new and unlike anything they had ever heard of. They couldn't wrap their minds around it. It's like trying to get Niagara Falls into your coffee cup or the power of the sun's fusion into one little light bulb. You can't control it. And when we're not in control, when we can't uh, overcome it, when we can't explain it, when we cannot comprehend it, my first reaction is fear. But then the angel spoke beyond just that he rose from the dead. N.T. Wright says it this way, ever since then, people have tried to squash the Easter message into conventional boxes that just won't fit. Easter is what it is because together with the crucifixion, it is a central event of world history, the moment towards which everything was rushing and from which everything emerges due. Everything is different because of this moment. The first word from the angel shows just how gloriously different and comforting it can be and how encouraging it is to the heart. He writes, or he speaks to the women and says, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, if I was writing the gospel account and I was making this up, I would say something like the angel said, now you tell those sniveling, betraying, backstabbing cowards who wanted to be my disciples, that if they grovel enough and if they get up to Galilee, I might just show up, but for Peter, tell him, forget about it. He's done. He went too far. Do you see the encouragement there? Jesus is not looking. Religion says, if you repent, God might forgive you. Christianity says, I forgive you, which empowers you to be able to repent. And Peter is mentioned here, and you might go like, well, why Peter? You kind of know why Peter. Can you imagine if, if the, the angels just said, go tell his disciples to meet me in Galilee, and you will see me there, and Peter would say, well, that's great. You guys go. You go ahead, because, but he can't mean me. Not after what I did. He mentions Peter specifically. The biggest screw-up becomes the greatest apostle. The greatest proclaimer of God's grace. 
It's theologically profound. Religion understands salvation is kind of through strength. That is, the, the stronger I have my faith, the more I lived up to the standards, the spiritually stronger I am. But the gospel says, you got it all wrong. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace comes through your weaknesses. Jesus on the cross, in the midst of his weakness, in the midst of being overcome by death, that's where you see God's vulnerability, his passion for you, everything that he did for you. He meets you in your weakness, in your vulnerabilities. And when you are weak, that's when you are strong. When you are dependent on God, that's where your strength lies. This is encouraging to the heart. Pastors are not that strong. We're we realize our weaknesses every day, just like every one of us do, right? You don't expect strength. Expect to hear simply Jesus. And finally, I said it frames our future. These women, the fear makes sense because everything has been changed. The familiarity of what they had lived throughout their lives, what we lived throughout our lives, now all of a sudden the future is totally different. It's going in a different direction. Death is no longer the end. It's a doorway. It's something we pass through. As George Herbert once said, death used to be the, an executioner, but, but the gospel has made him in just a gardener. That is, my body's planted and it's going to bloom resurrection. Sin is no longer the stain that can't be erased. It is obliterated by the crucified and resurrected one. Hate and injustice that we see in this world, the threats of global terrorism and pandemic disease, the use of power for evil purposes all around us, the violence and the racism that we see rampant, they don't last. The politics of fear, the toxicity of tribalism that we're seeing in this world, the reality of war itself, those things are not eternal. Those are not the definitive marks that change any of you. No, instead, Jesus is your future. Simply Jesus has your future in his hands. Cancer, alienation, loneliness, hurt, shame, guilt, no. They don't have the last word. Jesus does. He defines things. He controls things. He determines things. He has promised, and he will follow through. Mark ends the gospel, like I said, with that phrase. They said nothing to anyone they were afraid for. It's just like, what? Compels you. It challenges you. It encourages you. It frames for you. Now the message, you got to tell someone else. You are part of that gospel now. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we thank and praise you for this gospel message today, the resurrection. Lord, I know how it's a challenge for people, modern people, to believe because we've been huh, lulled into whatever. Lord, so often we just want to have a wonderful, comfortable life when you want to give us a life of purpose and meaning and direction that goes exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine. We pray, Lord God, that today, this message of resurrection gets through to all of us. Thank you, Lord, for the billions that are following you now, Lord, who proclaim your message around this world, one of peace and joy and hope. 
and a future. Lord God, I just pray today that we are so inspired that we move forward and become part of that gospel message. As Mark ends his gospel, Lord, kind of on that cliffhanger, it compels us to be the disciples who proclaim and teach and serve and love in your name, Lord Jesus. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would now on this resurrection day especially be with Christians around the world who are facing difficulties. For the people of Ukraine, Lord, we just grieve over the atrocities and the injustices. For, for others, O oh Lord, who are facing such uh, economic uh, fallout from all of the things that have gone on globally, Lord God, we just pray you would move your people to serve and to give in such a way that everyone has enough and that your name is proclaimed and glorified. We pray, Lord, in this year 2022, as we celebrate nearly 2,000 years post-resurrection, Lord God, that we don't lose hope, that we don't get lulled into just going along. I also pray, Lord, for those I have met and those we all know who are kind of in that none of the above category, Lord, nothing in particular. You know, we know you love them so deeply and dearly, Lord. You know you grieve over the hurts they have undergone, um, how they've been treated by potentially some of your followers, Lord Jesus. I pray that you'd move, uh, forgive us for any way that we've been a part of that and help us, O oh Lord, to be your servants, to show you simply, Lord, to them. This world needs you, Jesus, simply you. Not programs, not great philosophies. We need you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've given us today, that you have been present here. You are present right now to come into our hearts and lives as resurrected Lord and Savior. All this we pray in Jesus' name.